Section 4 of Uther and Egrein. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Uther and Egrein by Warwick Deeping. Book 1, Chapter 4. When they were clear of the solemn beaches and saw the road white as white before them, Egrine began to tell the man of the doom of Avangel and the great end made by Gratia the abbess. The knight had folded his red cloak and spread it for her comfort. Her tale seemed very welcome to him despite its grievous humor, and he questioned her much concerning Gratia, her goodness and her charity. Now it had been well known in Avangel that Gratia had come of noble and excellent descent, and seeing that this stranger had been familiar with her in the past, Egrine guessed shrewdly that he himself was of some ancient and goodly stock. To tell the truth, she was very curious concerning him, and it was not long before she found a speech ready to her tongue likely to draw some confession from his lips. I have promised to pray for you, she said, and pray for you I will, seeing that you have done me so great a blessing tonight. When I bow to the Virgin and the saints, what name may I remember? The man did not look at her, for her face was in the shadow of her hood, and his clear and white in the light of the moon. To some I am known as Sir Peleus, he said. And to me? As Sir Peleus, if it please you, madam. Egrine understood that she was to be pleased with the name, whether she liked it or not. Then, for Sir Peleus, I will pray, she said, and may my gratitude avail him. There was silence for a space, broken by the rhythmic play of hoofs upon the road and the dull jar of steel. Egrine was meditating further catechism, adapting her questions for the knowledge she wished for. You ride errant, she said presently. I ride alone, madam. The wold is a rude region set thick with perils. Very true, quoth the man. Perhaps you are a venturesome spirit. I believe that I am often as careful as death. Egrine made her culminating suggestion. Some high deed must have been in your heart, she said, or probably you would not have risked so much. The man Peleus did not even look at her. She felt the bridle arm that half held her tighten unconsciously as though he were steeling himself against her curiosity. Madam, he said very gravely, every man's business should be for his own heart, and I do not know that I have any need to share the right or wrong of mine with others. It is a grand thing to be able to keep one's own counsel. It is enough for you to know my name. Egrine, nonetheless, was not a bit abashed. There is one thing I would hear, she said, 
And that is how you came to know of the Abbas Grazia. For a moment the man looked black, and his lips were stern. You may know if you wish, he said. Well? Madam, the Lady Grazia was my mother. Ikrain felt a flood of sudden shame burst redly into her heart. Gratia was the man's mother, and she had been plying him with questions, cruelly curious. She caught a short, shallow breath and hung her head, shrinking like a prodigal. Set me down, she said. I am not worthy to ride with you. Pardon me, quoth the man. You did not think, not knowing I was in pain. Set me down, was all she said. Set me down, set me down. The man, Peleus, changed his tone. Madam, he said, with a sudden gentleness that made her desire to weep, I have forgiven you. What, then, does it matter? Ikrain hung her head. I am altogether ashamed she said. She drew her hood well over her face and took her reproof to heart like a veritable penitent. Even religious solemnities make little change in the notorious weaknesses of women. Igrain was angry, not only for having blundered clumsily against the man's sorrow, but also because of the somewhat graceless part she seemed to have played after the deliverance he had vouchsafed her. As yet, her character seemed to have lost honor fast by mere brief contrast with the man's. Peleus, meanwhile, rode with eyes watching the wan stretch of road to the west. On either side the woods rose up like nebulous hills, bowled by tunneled mysteries of gloom. He had turned his horse to the grass beside the roadway so that the tramp of hoofs should fall muffled on the air. Egrine, close against his steeled breast, with his bridal arm about her, looked into his face from the shadows of her hood and found much to initiate her liking. If she loved strength, it was there. If she desired the grand reserve of silent vigor, it was there also. The deeply caverned eyes watching through the night seemed dark with quiet destiny. The large, finely molded face, gaunt and white in its meditative repose, seemed fit to front the ruins of a stricken land. It was the face of a man who had watched and striven, who had followed truth like a shadow, and had found the light of life in the heavens. There was bitterness there, pain, and the ghost of a sad desire that had pleaded with death. The face would have seemed morose, but for a certain something that made its shadows kind. Instinctively, as she watched the mask of thought beneath the dark arch of his open cask, she felt that he had memories in his heart at that moment. His thoughts were not for her, however much she pitied him, or longed to tell him of her shame and sympathy. Nothing could come into that sad session of remembrances, save the soul of the man and 
the memories of his mother. That he was grieving deeply, Igrain knew well. His was a strong nature that brooded in silence and felt the more. It must be a terrible thing, she thought, to have the martyrdom of a mother haunting the heart like a fell dream at night. Slipping from such a reverie, the turmoil and weariness of the past days returned to take their tribute. Despite the strangeness of the night, Ekrein began to feel sleepy as a tired child. The magnetic calm of the man beside her seemed to lull to slumber, while the motion of the ride cradled her the more. The noise of hoofs, the dull clink of scabbard against spur or harness, grew faint and faint. The woods seemed to swim into a mist of silver. She saw, as in a dream, the strong face above her staring calmly into the night, the long spear poised heavenwards. Her head was on the man's shoulder. With scarcely a thought, she was asleep. It was then that Peleus discovered the girl heavy in his arms and looked down to find her sleeping, with hood fallen and a white face turned peacefully to his. Strangely enough, the sorrow that had taken him seemed to make his senses vibrate strongly to the more human things of life. The supple warmth of the girl's slim body crept up the sinews of his arms like a subtle flame. From her half-parted lips, the sigh of her breathing came into his bosom. Over his harness clouded her hair, and her two hands had fastened themselves upon his sword belt with a restful trust. The man bent his head and watched her in some awe. Her lips were like autumn fruit fed wistfully on moonlight. To Peleus, woman was still wonderful, a creature to be touched with reverence and soft delight. The drab, the scold, and the harlot had failed to debase the ideals of a staunch spirit and the fair flesh at his breast was as full of mystery as a woman could be. He took his fill of gazing, feeling half ashamed of the deed, and half dreading lest Igrine should wake suddenly and look deeply into his eyes. He felt his flesh creep with magic when she stirred or sighed, or when the hands upon his belt twitched in their slumber. Peleus had seen stark things of late, burnt hamlets, priests slaughtered and churches in flames, children dead in the trampled places of the slain. He had ridden where smoke ebbed heavenwards and blood clotted the green grass. Now this ride beneath the quiet ice of night, with the bosomed silence of the woods around, and this lily plucked from death in his arms, seemed like a passage of calm after a page of tempest. Little wonder that he looked long into the girl's face and thrilled to the soft sway of her bosom. He thanked God in his heart that he had plucked her blemishless from gradual death. It was even thus, he thought, that a good soldier should ride into paradise bearing the soul of the woman he loved.
Igrine stirred little in her sleep. Poor child, thought Peleus. She has suffered much, has feared death, and is weary. Let her sleep the night through if she can. So he drew the cloak gently about her, said his prayers in his heart, and holding as much as possible under the shadows of the trees, kept watch patiently on the track before him. All that night Peleus rode, thinking of his mother, with the girl sleeping in his arms. He saw the moon go down in the west, while the gray mist of the hour before dawn made the forest gaunt like an abode of the dead. He heard the birds wake in the brake and thicket. He saw the red deer scamper, frightened into the glooms, and the rabbits scurrying amid the bracken. When the east mellowed, he found himself in fair meadowlands, lying locked in the depths of the wold, where flowers were thick as on some rich tapestry, and where the scent of dawn was as the incense of many temples. With a calm sorrow for the dead, he rode on, threading the meadowland, till the girl woke and looked up into his face with a little sigh. Then he smiled at her half sadly and wished her good morning. Igrine, wide-eyed, looked around in a daze. Day, she said, and meadows? It was moonlight when I fell asleep. It has dawned an hour or more. Then I have slept the night through. You must be tired to death and stiff with holding me. Not so, said Peleus. I am sorry that I have been selfish, she said. I was asleep before I could think. Have you ridden all night? Of course, quoth he with a smile, and not a soul have I seen. I have been watching your face and the moon. Igrine colored slightly and looked sideways at him from under her long lashes. Her sleep had chastened her, and she felt blithe as a bird and ready to sing. Putting the man's scarlet cloak from her, she shook her hair from her shoulders and sprang lightly from her seat to the grass. I will run at your side a while, she said, so rest you. Perhaps you will halt presently and sleep an hour or two under a tree. I can watch and keep guard with your sword. Peleus smiled down at her like the sun from behind a cloud. Not yet, he said. A soldier needs no sleep for a week, and I feel lusty as Christopher. We will go a while before breakfast, if it please you. There is a stream near where I can water my horse, and we can make a meal from such stuff as I have. When you are tired, tell me, and I will mount you here again. She nodded at him gravely. Grass and flowers were well nigh to her waist. Her gown shook showers of dew from the feathery hay. Foxglove rose like purple rods amidst the snow webs of the wild daisy. Tangled domes of dog rose and honeysuckle lined the white track, and there were countless harebells lying like a deep blue haze under the green shadows of the grass. Presently, 
they came to where red poppies grew thickly in the golden meads. Igrain ran in among them and began to make a great posy, while Peleus watched her as her gray gown went amid the green and red. In due course, she came back to him holding her flowers in her bosom. Scarlet is your color, she said, and these are the flowers of sleep and of dreams for those that grieve. Hold them in the hollow of your shield for me. Peleus obeyed her mutely. She began to sing a soft, slumberous dirge while she walked beside the great black horse and plaited the flowers into its mane. The man watched her with a kind of wondering pain. The song seemed to wake echoes in him, like sea surges wake in the caverns of a cliff. He understood Igrine's grace to him and was grateful in his heart. How long were you mewed in Evangel? he said presently. Long enough, quoth she, betwixt her singing, to learn to love life. So I should judge, said Peleus curtly. His tone disenchanted her. She threw the rest of the flowers aside and walked quietly beside him, looking up with a frank seriousness into his face. I was placed there by my parents, she said, by way of explanation, and against my will, for I had no hope in me to be a nun. But the times were wild, and my father, a solemn soul, thought for the best. But you're novitiate. You had your choice. I had my choice, she answered vaguely. Did ever a woman choose for the best? Evangel was no place for me. Peleus eyed her somewhat sadly from his higher vantage. The nun's is a sorry life, he said, when her thoughts fly over the convent walls. A level kindness in the words seemed to loose her tongue like magic. Twelve long months had her sympathies been outraged, and her young desires crushed by the heel of a so-called godliness. Never had so kind a chance for the outpouring of her discontent come to her. Women love an honest grumble. In a moment, all her bitterness found ready flight into the man's ears. I hated it, she said. I hated it. Avangel had no hold on me. What were vigils, penitences, and long prayers to a girl? They made us kneel on stone and sleep on boards. The chapel bell seemed to ring every minute of the day. We had vile food and no liberty. It was saint this, saint that, from morning till night. We saw no men. We might never dress our hair. And, believe me, there were no mirrors. I had to go to a little pool in the garden to see my face. And they were so dull, so dismal. No one ever laughed. No one ever told romances. All our legends were of pious things in petticoats. And what was the use of it all? Was anyone ever a jot the better? I used to get into my cell and stamp. I felt like a corpse in a charnel house, and the whole world seemed dead. 
Pelias scanned her half-smilingly, half-sadly. I am sorry for your heart, he said. Sorry? You needs must be when you are a soldier, with life in your ears like a clarion cry. Life is a sorry ballad, Sister Egrine, unless we remember the cross. Ah, yes, I have all the saints in mind, dear souls. But then, Sir Pelias, one cannot live on one's knees. I was made to laugh and twinkle, and if such is sin, then a sorry nun am I. You misunderstand me, said the man. I would that a Christian held his course over the world, with a great cross set in the west to lead him. He can laugh and joy as he goes, sleep like the good, and take the fruits of life in his time. Yet ever above him should be the glory of the cross, to chasten, purge, and purify. There is no sin in living merrily if we live well, but to plot for pleasure is to lose it. Look at the sun. There is no need for us to ever be on our knees to him, yet we know well that it would be a sorry world without his comfort. Ah, she said with a little gesture, I see you are too devout for me, despite my habit. Take me up again, Sir Pelias, and I will ride with you, though I may not argue. Pelias halted his horse, and she was soon in the saddle before him, somewhat subdued and pensive in contrast to her former vivacity. The man believed her a nun, and she had a character to play. Well, when she wearied of it, which would probably be soon, she could tell him and so end the matter. It was not long before they came to the ford across the stream Peleus had spoken of. It was a green spot shut in by thorn trees, and here they made a halt as the night had purposed. Before the meal, Peleus knelt by the stream and prayed. Igrine, seeing him so devout, did likewise, though her eyes were more on the man than on heaven. Her thoughts never got above the clouds. When they were at their meal of meat and bread, with a horn of water from the stream, she talked yet further of her life at Avangel and the meager blessing it had been to her. It was while she talked thus that she saw something about the man's person that fired her memory and set her thinking of the journey of yesterday. Peleus was wearing a gold chain that bore a cross hanging above the left breast, but with no cross over the right. Looking more keenly, Igrine saw a broken link still hanging from the right portion of the chain. Instinctively, her thoughts fled back to the silent manor in the wood, and the dead man seated stiffly in the great carved chair. Without duly weighing the possible gravity of her words, she began to tell Peleus of the incident. Yesterday, she said, I saw a strange thing as we fled through the wold. We came to a villa, and seeking food there, found it deserted, save for a dead man seated in a chair and stricken in the breast. The dead man had a small gold cross clutched in his fingers, and there was a dead hound at his feet. The man gave her a keen look from the depths of his dark eyes, then glanced at the broken chain. 
You see that I have lost a cross, he said. Igrine nodded. Your reason can read the rest. She nodded again. There is nothing like the truth. Igrine stared at the man in some astonishment. He was cold as a frost, and there was no shadow of discomfort on his strong face. Knowledge had come to her so sharply that she had no answer for him at the moment. Yet there stood a sublime certainty in her heart that this violent deed was deserving of absolute approval. So soon had her faith in him become like steel. The man deserved death, she said presently, with a curt and ingenuous confidence. Peleus eyed her curiously. How should you know? he asked. I have faith in you, was all she said. Peleus smiled, despite the subject. No man deserved death better. And so you slew him. He nodded without looking at her, and she could see still the embers of wrath in his eyes. I slew him in his own manner, finding him alone, and ready to justify himself with lies. Honor does not love such deeds. But what would you? Britain is free of a viper. And you have blood on your hand. He winced slightly and glanced at his fingers as though she had not spoken in metaphor. All is blood in these days, he said. And what think you of such laws, she ventured, with a supreme reaching after the requirements of her order. What of the cross? There was blood upon it. But the blood of self-sacrifice. Her words moved him more than she had purposed. His dark face flushed, and light kindled in his eyes as though the basal tenets of his life had been called in question. He glowed like a man whose very creed is threatened. Igrine watched the fire rising in him with a secret pleasure. The love of a woman for the hot courage of a man. Listen to me, he said strongly. Which think you is the worthier of life? To dream in a stone cell, mewed from the world like a weak weed in a cellar, or to go forth with a red heart and a mellow honor? To strive and smite for the weak and the wounded? To right the wrong? To avenge the fatherless? Choose and declare. Choose, she said, with a shrill laugh and a kindling color. Truth and I will. Away with the rosary. Give me the sword. Like a wild echo to her human choice came the distant cry of a horn borne hollowly over the sleeping meadows. Both heard it and started. The great warhorse, grazing nearby, tossed his head, snorted, and stood listening with ears twitching and head to the east. Peleus rose up and scanned the road from under his hand, and the girl Igrine beside him. A Saxon horn, he said laconically. The heathen are in the woods. This is the end of Chapter 4 of Uther and Igrine by Warwick Deeping. This LibriVox recording has been narrated by Lori Richardson at www.loririchardsonvo.com.